beyond demand world of entertainment that we have and enjoy today was little more than a science fiction fever dream when I was growing up in a small village in the Ottawa Valley. We didn't even get cable TV until the mid-80s, and our local newspaper? It was a weekly. You could rent VHS tapes at a few different places in town, but the selection was about what you'd expect from a convenience store in a place with a population that hovered around a thousand citizens. There were cinemas within a reasonable drive in any direction out of town, but there were no multiplexes. Just a single screen, with the same movie shown twice. Buy your ticket, buy your popcorn, watch the movie, go home. No arcades, no array of food options, no reclining seats, no 3D glasses, and no device in your pocket that would almost make the notion of consuming entertainment a ritual or a process obsolete. In homes now, televisions are so much more than televisions. They are information hubs where films, music, social media, games, and more can all appear on demand. Being entertained isn't a ritual anymore. It's a default state of being. In his 1985 book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman argued that television narcotizes the citizens watching it, and information becomes commodified and made subordinate to the never-sated needs for entertainment content. But 35 years later, we are far beyond what Postman imagined. We exist in a constant state of either being entertained, or being prepared to be entertained, or even creating content for others to be entertained by. McLuhan said that the medium is the message, and Postman altered that to the medium is the metaphor. But now, in a world where the creator is the content, do we need to reevaluate this thinking? I love music. I love movies. I love gaming. And it's easier than ever before to indulge in that. And yet, history tells us that putting our own pleasure above all else is a road to ruin. And Postman, comparing our society to the one Huxley posits in Brave New World is not a comparison that is flattering nor encouraging. The fever dream has come true. And we're all fine, aren't we? His Girl Friday and films like it that present the creation of content, the commodification of information, and the shaping of narrative for an audience's consumption are endlessly relevant. I'd like to have watched this film, or Wag the Dog, with Postman. I'd bet he'd have had some thoughts. Not me, though. I just love old movies. Hello, film historians. I'm Derek, and I love old movies. We've got Sam the Sidekick here. Hello, and welcome to episode 29. Episode 20, fine. For once, I don't disagree. Oh, no? Nope. This is going to be one fine episode, and here's why. We've got a really fun film. We're closing off our month of romance movies and getting set for another special episode. Okay, that's all good. And we've now been around for over 200 days, and we're closing in fast on 5,000 total listens, which is amazing. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. We've got more people from more countries than ever before listening to the show, getting in touch, and letting us know what they've been liking about our podcast. This is all very fine. I couldn't agree more. 
And today, we're going to keep the momentum rolling with a look at a great example of the screwball comedy subgenre with 1940's His Girl Friday, directed by Howard Hawks and starring Cary Grant. So no shortage of star power is what I'm hearing. None whatsoever. But before we get underway, please take a moment to hit like, subscribe, and share. In fact, really hit that subscribe. That's a big one for us. We're trying to get the subs up, so help us out. You don't even have to enable notifications or anything. Just give us that subscribe and I will totally get off your back about it. If you are listening on audio only, like maybe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, see if there's a way to drop us some stars and maybe a quick review. We appreciate that sort of thing. And if you write something really cool, we will read it on the air. I promise. And while you're doing all the clicking and liking and subscribing, be sure to add us and follow us on the socials. It's easy and fun to do. So check us out on the Facebook. I Love Old Movies, the podcast. The Instagram. At I Love Old Movies, the podcast. El Twitter. At ILOM podcast. Or send us a good old-fashioned email anytime you'd like. I Love Old Movies, the podcast at gmail.com. All one word. This past Monday, our show started playing on PetRockRadio.com, which is an amazing online indie radio station based in our hometown of Peterborough, Ontario. They're running our episodes in order and started with Rope of Sand this week. Each episode will play three times. And you know what? Even when it's not Dad and I talking about movies, there is a lot on Pet Rock you could listen to and enjoy. The tunes are always killer and a nice mix of local and international acts. Be sure to check them out. We'll link it in the description. Now, next week, our 30th episode is going to hit. 30? Man. I know, right? It's pretty awesome. Now, in the past, for episodes 10 and 20, we've done sort of panel discussions on specific topics. You can go back and check those out if you haven't already. But this time, we're going to do something a bit different. Sam and I, and maybe even a special guest, are going to watch a film and record our commentary and thoughts while watching it. Then we will post that and link to the movie we watched so you can watch the film with our commentary playing. Maybe this is a stupid idea. Maybe it'll be the greatest thing ever. I don't know. No, me neither. But we're going to try. We promise, one way or another, to be back talking about movies normally in episode 31. Yeah, especially since all through March we are going to be looking at westerns. Yes! Which one is first? I can't believe I'm saying this, but we are going back to the Burt Lancaster well and having a watch of The Unforgiven. So that one is first. Then The Professionals. The Oxbow Incident. And Yellow Sky will round things out. It's going to be great. March is going to be fantastic. And it's still adventure movies in April? Oh, it is. Awesome. But for now, it's time to settle in with a classic rom-com from before the days when that was even a term people used in polite conversation. So let's stop the presses and get going with our look at His Girl Friday. Hit the music. The director of His Girl Friday was Howard Hawks. Hawks was an extremely versatile and prolific director, working in many different genres, including comedies, war films, westerns, and sci-fi. He started out as a prop boy for the Douglas Fairbanks film In Again, Out Again. He continued doing similar jobs for various productions, even working on films with Mary Pickford multiple times, before starting his directing career at the age of 21. 
This had to be put on hold while he served during World War I, but eventually he moved back to Hollywood and was hired as a screenwriter for Paramount in 1922. Overall, he worked on scripts for about 60 films before he finally directed his first movie, The Road to Glory, in 1926. Despite the peak of his career occurring during a time dominated by the studio system of Hollywood, Hawks managed to remain independent as he directed eight different silent films and made a successful transition into talkies, making hit after hit in the early 1930s. Hawks is even viewed as having played a major role in turning John Wayne into a superstar, with his roles in Red River, Fort Apache, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, and Rio Grande. After churning out films through the 1940s, production started slowing down in the 50s, winding down Hawks' career with only five films in the last decade of his career. Hawks is most known for his work on Scarface, the 1932 version, bringing up Baby, His Girl Friday, Red River, The Thing from Another World, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and Rio Bravo. He has an impressive 47 directing credits over 44 years. Hawks won an Oscar for Best Director in 1942 for the film Sergeant York and was presented an Honorary Academy Award in 1974. He died in 1977 at the age of 81. The writer is Charles Lederer. Lederer first started his career thanks to his friendship with fellow screenwriter Ben Hecht, which led to Lederer being hired to write dialogue for The Front Page in 1931. He then moved to Hollywood, and between 1940 to 1943, he wrote a series of comedies for MGM, including Comrade X in 1940. He also wrote the screenplay for the sci-fi film The Thing from Another World in 1951. He co-wrote several films over the years, including the 1960s Ocean's Eleven, His Girl Friday, 1940, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, 1953, and Mutiny on the Bounty, 1962. Letterer is most known for his work on His Girl Friday and earned over 40 writing credits over 30 years. An interesting point about Letterer is that he was low-key responsible for the commercial failure of Citizen Kane in 1941. Okay, so get this. Letterer was friends with one of the co-screenwriters for the film, Herman Mankiewicz. According to Pauline Kael, a film critic from The New Yorker, Mankiewicz gave a copy of Citizen Kane to Letterer when he finished writing it because he was so proud of it. Apparently, Letterer was upset about this and gave the script to his aunt and a friend of his. This friend was none other than William Randolph Hearst. Well, the script then got passed to Hearst's lawyers. It's suspected that this led to the cancellation of the premiere at the Radio City Music Hall and the commercial failure of Citizen Kane. So, way to screw things up for Orson Welles, Charles. Letterer died in 1976 at the age of 65. Playing the driven and relentless newspaper editor Walter Burns is the legendary Cary Grant. It's been said of Grant that he was the greatest leading man that Hollywood has ever known, and the best star actor that there ever was in the movies. This is fantastically high praise, and is entirely earned. Coming from a difficult childhood, and parents that struggled with mental health issues and addiction, Grant fell in with a traveling entertainment group, with him developing skills in singing, dance, pantomime, and acting. In 1920, Grant traveled to America on the Olympic 
and met Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford before becoming a part of a touring vaudeville circuit. Grant's first Hollywood film was as the lead in a musical called Nicky with Faye Ray. Now, while that film enjoyed only a limited run, Grant was noticed, and things took off for him quickly. By December of 1931, just three months after the release of Nicky, Grant was signed by Paramount to a five-year contract. After making a series of films, not all of which were well-received, but his performances were always praised, Grant let his contract with Paramount expire, and he signed concurrent deals with RKO and Columbia, his thinking being that this would allow him to be choosier over the scripts he would be offered, and he could focus on making better films. Ironically, it was then being loaned to Hal Roach Studios to make the popular hit film Topper, which was the real springboard to his future success. Grant stayed busy all through the 1940s, working with top directors like Alfred Hitchcock and Howard Hawks and Frank Capra, while pairing with leading ladies like Katharine Hepburn, Ginger Rogers, and Ethel Barrymore. Grant was slowly moving away from comedic roles with dramatic undertones to dramatic roles with romantic or comedic undertones, and yet he could star in a Hitchcock film like Notorious, and then in a light piece of fluff like I Was a Male War Bride, and audiences and critics still bought into him. By the 1950s, Grant felt his film career was essentially over, and even retired for a brief time, but he still had some big films left in the tank. With two more Hitchcock films, To Catch a Thief and North by Northwest, both celebrated by critics and fans. By the 1960s, his career was truly winding down, however, and faced with playing increasingly older roles and feeling he had aged out of being a convincing leading man, Grant retired in 1966. His last role as a suave charmer came in 1963's Charade and had one final hit with Father Goose the following year. There were many attempts to lure him back onto screen, but none were successful. He had substantial business interests and board of director commitments with many organizations to keep him busy. And in his final years, he toured a one-man show where he fielded questions from audience members about his career. Long despondent over the loss of many of his close friends, like Grace Kelly and Alfred Hitchcock, Grant joined them in 1986, passing away at the age of 82. In the role of Hildy Johnson, reporter extraordinaire, is Rosalind Russell. Russell enjoyed a decades-long and celebrated career as an actress, specializing in playing dignified professional women. After beginning her career on stage, Russell went to Hollywood in 1930, signing first with Universal, but then more successfully with MGM. Beginning with a small role in Evelyn Prentice, Russell made a string of films getting consistent good notices from moviegoers and critics alike. Her comedic talents were obvious, eventually leading to her casting in His Girl Friday, but she was disappointed to learn that almost every other name actress in Hollywood had been offered the role and turned it down. She ended the 40s with Best Actress nominations for My Sister Eileen, Sister Kenny, and Morning Becomes Electra. Her last nomination came in 1958 for her role that she is probably most associated, Auntie Mame, which she starred in both in film and on stage. She never won a competitive Oscar, but did receive a special humanitarian award from the Academy. She also won five Golden Globes and a Tony Award. Unlike many performers from the 40s and 50s, Russell did not move into television in a notable way, with only three of her 55 credits being for television work. 
Her last film was a made-for-TV movie, though, The Crooked Hearts, in 1972. Rosalind Russell died in 1976 at the age of 69. Howard Hawks loved the play, The Front Page, considering it to contain some of the finest dialogue ever written. His original plan was to make a straight-up adaptation of it, starring Cary Grant in the reporter role. But after hearing his secretary read Grant's lines and loving how it played, he decided to cast Grant as the editor and find an actress to play the newly redesigned character of Hildy Johnson. And change a ton of dialogue. And that, yeah. Hawks wanted a lot of changes, and he stayed in very close contact with the writers during the process. And the finished project wasn't as close to the original as first intended. And with the heavy use of improvisation and ad-libbing by the actors on set, Hawks's goal of making a film with the fastest dialogue ever filmed seemed to be coming together. It is fast. It's so fast. And they just keep going so many times. That was part of it, for sure. They also did some kind of technology trick, too, didn't they? Yeah, they did. What Hawks really wanted to do involved recording dialogue on multiple tracks and down-mixing them onto a single track. The problem was, multi-track recording didn't exist yet. So whatever dialogue he was going to get, he was going to have to get off the floor, live. What the sound recorders did was hang an array of microphones above the actors. And when they started doing these overlapping scattershot delivery lines, what the sound editors would do is turn the microphones off and on during recording, which gave the effect of voices rising and falling in volume as one person spoke over another. That's super clever. And they even wrote dialogue specifically to accommodate this? Yeah. Hawks felt that the beginning and endings of sentences didn't really matter. So he had the middles loaded with the good stuff. But of course, that's where all the overlapping was going on. Add into that the frequent ad-libs and improv lines, and you've got a one-of-a-kind achievement in vocal delivery. Yeah, they're for sure funnier films, or ones with maybe more compelling plots. But no film sounds like this one when people get speaking. It's like getting onto a roller coaster every time someone opens their mouth. Right? No wonder the film set the world record for the most words spoken per minute of film. Was the film a hit? It was well received for sure. The front page was a well-known property, both on stage and in previous film versions. But critics and audiences found this to be a great version of the property. And they really liked the changes, especially the character of Hildy Johnson. The New Yorker called it as fresh and undated and bright a film as you could want. And years later, it's generally viewed by, by film historians as the definitive screwball comedy, anchored by note-perfect performances by its leads. Awesome. What's the tale of the tape on this one, Sam? Okay, so we have a 7.9 on IMDb. Yeah. The audience score is 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, and the tomato meter is 99%. There we go. The film can be watched on YouTube or Amazon Prime. We open on a newspaper background, and the title and names appear. We see a busy writer's bullpen. Hildy walks in and absolutely owns the place. She's a star journalist. Hildy is here with her milksop fiancé, Bruce Baldwin. He can't bear to be away from her for ten minutes. Oh, grow a spine there, Bruce. Everyone knows and loves Hildy, and I really love her outfit. She goes to see the editor of the paper, Walt. He's also her ex-husband. 
and they haven't seen each other in a while. It seems he's not quite over her. Divorce doesn't mean anything nowadays, he says. She seemed dissatisfied with the marriage. It was always work first, the newspaper first. What she wants is no more calls from him, no more telegrams from him. But he wants her to come back and work for the paper, and maybe they could get married again. She shows him her engagement ring and tells him of her intent to leave the newspaper business once and for all. Her guy is a nice, boring insurance salesman. He's kind and sweet and considerate and wants children. Oh, and the wedding is tomorrow. I'm more or less particular about who my wife marries, Walt says, and he wants to meet Bruce. Well, Walt takes them to lunch, and Bruce is really, um, lame. He likes Hildy, though, because she's so unpredictable. And Walt puts it to Bruce's head that maybe Hildy doesn't want to leave the journalism business. They're going to move to Albany and live with Bruce's mother. They're leaving today at 4 p.m. However, Walt is sort of winning Bruce over with his charm. Walt tries to cancel their train and announces that Hildy will return to the paper in order to help with a big story involving a man who shot a police officer. You know, he just keeps meddling in their lives. Not so sure I like Walt. Walt wants Hildy to write a story that might save an innocent man's life. Hildy won't do it, so Walt makes a deal to buy a huge insurance policy from Bruce with a massive commission. That is doable, but Hildy makes sure that she has all of Bruce's money. $500, so Walt can't get his hands on it. Hildy goes and visits her reporter friends to find out about the Earl Williams case. Something seems fishy to her. And Walter makes Bruce understand that he still loves Hildy, and Bruce feels like a heel for coming between them. Walter purchases the policy and makes Hildy his beneficiary. On the phone, Hildy convinces Bruce to hide the check for the policy in his hat. Which is good, because Walt has some tough-looking hood follow Bruce. Why does Walt have a henchman? That guy is totally a henchman. Louis the henchman. <laughs> Hildy interviews Earl Williams. He shot a policeman, and he doesn't seem to be able to account for why. He keeps mumbling something about a philosophy of production for use, which Hildy thinks might have accidentally motivated the attack. While Hildy writes up the interview, Molly, Earl's girlfriend, shows up to rip the newspaper men a new one. She knows they have been painting lies about Earl and calls them on it. They feel crappy, but that's the job, to write what people will read. Bruce calls Hildy. He's in jail for stealing a watch, but the watch was planted on him and his wallet stolen. Hildy gets him out and tells him to wait for the train. Hildy is pretty sure Walter is behind the arrest. She calls him and chews him out and tears up the interview she had written for him. While Hildy is saying her final farewell to the writers, there's a jailbreak and Earl Williams has escaped. Hildy calls Walter and says she's on the job. Oh, she's got journalism in the blood, that Hildy. Hildy gets the story, but she has to spend $450 of Bruce's 500 to get it. Turns out that during an interrogation, the sheriff handed his gun over so Williams could reenact the shooting, and he shot himself out. Walt sends $450 in counterfeit money to make good Hildy's losses. He has the henchman deliver it. Now wait, he has access to large amounts of counterfeit money, and he has a henchman. Wasn't that exactly the bad guy from Johnny Allegro? Right? Bruce gets arrested again for mashing, but the girl that accused him works for Walter. 
Clearly, Walter is doing whatever it takes to keep Bruce, and more importantly, Hildy, in town so he can get the story in the morning edition. The mayor and sheriff might have to lose their jobs over this fiasco. The governor throws them under the bus with a statement to the press. A messenger arrives with a reprieve for Williams, but just then, the mayor learns that Williams has been caught. He wants the messenger to forget he ever showed up. This requires some bribery. Then the order to shoot to kill is given to the police. Williams dying is critical to their re-election strategy. Hildy gets the money and tries to call the paper when William shows up with his gun and holds Hildy. He's jumpy, and he fires off his last bullet, ending the hostage situation instantly. Williams is pretty far gone. Both Bruce and Walter call, and Hildy tries to explain her situation to both of them, and then Molly Malloy shows up again. The movie is really about Hildy and these newspapermen trying to solve the Earl Williams story. Way more than any love story going on. Bruce's mom shows up. She dresses Hildy down and wants Bruce's money back, and then she can leave. Molly takes the heat off by distracting everyone, but then she freaks out and jumps out the window, almost killing herself. That was sudden. Yeah. And almost needlessly dark, too. Walter shows up, and his henchman Louis carries the mother off. Williams captured by the post is the biggest story ever. Hildy is writing, Walter is dictating, and Williams hides in the roll-top desk. Bruce shows up, he wants to know what's going on and where his mother is. All three are talking over each other wildly. Walt on the phone, Hildy typing, and Bruce pleading. It's wild. This is so chaotic. Bruce leaves with the counterfeit money to catch the 9 o'clock train. Louis comes back. There was a car accident. He thinks Bruce's mom might be dead. Hildy wants to find Bruce's mom, and Walt wants to carry out the desk that Williams is hiding in. The other writers and sheriff arrive, and they all want answers. And the sheriff finds the gun. Hildy had it. And he identifies it as the gun Williams used, but also his own gun. He tries to arrest Hildy and Walt, and the sheriff vows to confiscate anything that belongs to the post. Walt manipulates them into moving the desk out. But then Bruce's mom shows up and says Walt had her kidnapped. Williams gives himself away in all the confusion, and the police capture him. The mayor shows up. And then the messenger shows up with the reprieve, having refused to take the bribe. The mayor has to politic this, and he releases Hildy and Walt. Then the mayor and the sheriff go to deliver the reprieve. Hildy and Walt are left alone. They reminisce about old times, and Walt tells her to go take the train. But Hildy wants to write the story. Walt admits he is jealous of Bruce. He wishes her luck and sends her out the door. As she's leaving, the phone rings. Bruce is in jail again for possessing counterfeit money. She breaks down crying. There have been too many betrayals from Walt once and for all. They agree to free Bruce and send him on his way. Hildy will write the story, and Walt and Hildy will be married. He promises her a honeymoon in Niagara Falls. But just then, a phone call comes in, telling of a big strike in Albany. Hildy knows her honeymoon is off, and Walt wonders if Bruce can put them up. The end. The end. Molly Malloy still just jumped out a window, and that was that. And Earl Williams shot a policeman and got a reprieve. And Hildy and Walt ended up together? 
Did she just get tired of his schemes to keep getting Bruce thrown in jail? I mean, I guess. You know what? First impressions. Not sure I loved the ending. This was not a couple I needed to see get together. I know what you mean. Okay, pros and cons. Let's do this. As always, Sam and I don't actually rate movies here on the show. There's no stars, there's no thumbs, no numbers assigned as fractions. We just make short lists of things we really liked about the film and some things we weren't as enthusiastic about. Pros and cons, as it were. As it were, sir. And then we give you a recommendation as to whether or not you should give the film a watch. Take it away. My pros. Number one, the scenes with the telephones. I don't know how many times in this movie that someone or multiple someones are speaking or yelling into phones, while people around them are doing the same or carrying out other conversations. But this dynamic is a defining theme of the movie. There is so much talking and so little listening in this film, and that forces everyone to just say more and more loudly and over top of each other. From an audience point of view, it's a brilliant, if somewhat exhausting, way to present dialogue, and the acting chops and filmmaking techniques required to make it work are substantial. A bit like this might be used once in a film these days. But in here, they don't do it once. It happens all the time, non-stop. Characters seem to talk more to their phones than to each other, almost ignoring each other sometimes. You know, that's oddly prophetic. Number two, the fast-paced dialogue. This movie has two dialogue settings, racing car fast and car crash noisy. And as a result, there are no really slow moments in the film. The way dialogue is handled, it's always up, and then it gets turned higher. The effect is a film that always seems fast-paced and high energy from the beginning right until the end. Hawks wanted the fastest dialogue ever, and he got it. And yet, not at the sake of clarity or storytelling. The rapid cadence of the film works. As a viewer, once you settle into it, you're dialed in and along for the ride, and it's a lot of fun. Number three, the way Hildy is treated like an equal. While there are some issues around gender roles in the film, and I'll talk about that in a moment, one big positive for me was how Hildy was clearly shown to be not merely an equal to the other newspapermen, but in fact even their superior. And no one makes a big deal about that. She's just the best there is at what she does, and everyone knows it. And that's a really cool and forward-thinking idea for a film from 80 years ago. Despite the title, Hildy is in no way a Girl Friday. And that becomes clear about 30 seconds into the movie. My cons. Number one, the romance. In simplest terms, there isn't any. Or at least there isn't any on screen. Whatever warmth and affection and love that there might have been between Hildy and Walt at some point, that's long over. And despite his cajoling of her, there are no outward shows of affection or love or even attraction between them. It's clear that she loves reporting but it's not clear that she loves Walter. And so while it makes sense that she would want to stay to write the story, that she agrees to marry him, that's a stretch. Part of the problem is that both men in her life are to a degree unlikable. Walt is bullish and manipulative and self-serving and egotistical, and he's really an unpleasant guy. And Bruce is mild and passive to the point of social ineptitude, and that his storyline is capped off by him being jilted or cuckolded, well, that fits like a glove. The men in Hildy's life are weak and flawed, with few redeeming qualities to them other than her professed but never shown love. Actually, does she even ever profess it? 
She never once says, I love you. She only ever refers to marriage. Maybe that's the problem right there. This is billed as a romance film, but there is no romance. And maybe there isn't even any love. Number two, the misogyny and gender role stereotyping. It doesn't age well to see Hildy have to choose between her career, which she loves and excels at, and having a family. This aspect of the story is very much a product of its time, and certainly would have played differently then. But watching it through a modern lens, telling a strong woman that she can be fulfilled and defined by either her career or the man she marries, but not both, is a bit off-putting. Hildy is an incredible character, a whirlwind of ability and drive and ambition, the sort of person that would be the best at whatever she did. That her marriage to Walt had failed was far more about him than her, and their next marriage will also likely fail, since it will head down the same road. So the film posits that she can have one thing or the other, but not both, since failure will be the outcome. It's anachronistic now, and given how great Hildy is, it's not even credible in the context of the film. Number three, the amount of subplots. There is a lot going on in this film, and I think it might be fair to say almost too much. As a result, some plot points seem to get introduced or alluded to but never really explored because something new comes along. It's clear the filmmakers are trying to replicate the fast-paced world of news journalism, where things can change on a dime. But the movie would benefit from a few fewer twists and turns, and just let some moments breathe. By the end of the movie, things have almost descended into farce, which lessens the impact and the logic of everything else going on. Not every twist has the time needed to set it up, and it's very easy to miss a critical line of dialogue. I mean, this is a small complaint. I'm just getting it out there. And is this a watch? Ah, of course it is. This is a top film in its genre, with leads that are knocking it out of the park every time they're on screen. Watch it twice. Okay, you're up. Okay, so my pros. One, Hildy. She was amazing. She was funny. She had some good lines, and watching her boss around her milk toast of a fiancé was amazing. There was this one part that was especially funny. Everyone had run off in different directions to track down leads on Williams when he ran away. People, police officers, and cars were going crazy on the streets. But Hildy just straight up books it out of the building, runs down the street while weaving between cars to not get hit, and ends up tackling this dude for information. She was really determined to get that info. It was really funny and honestly a little impressive for her to do all of that and not get hit by a car. Two, the dialogue. There were some funny lines, and it was all so quick. I think I've mentioned before, but I like to write down my pros and cons and things while I'm watching the movie as they come to mind. I physically could not do this this time. It was like a blink-and-you-miss-it sort of thing. Everyone was talking at a mile a minute, and if I looked away for a second, I would have missed a whole section of the plot. It was honestly kind of exhilarating to have to pay such close attention to a comedy film. It was just exciting to watch everyone talk so fast while trying to keep up with the story. 3. The scenes with the phones. They were hilarious. It was just people yelling into their phones while other people were yelling at them. It was non-stop. There was always so much going on. When everyone was yelling in these scenes, it seemed really chaotic and just like a lot of senseless noise. 
But the crazy thing was that it wasn't. I could totally understand what was happening the entire time, and I knew what was happening in each individual conversation. There were some really well-directed scenes, and they were a lot of fun to watch. Okay, now my cons. 1. Walter. What an absolute jerk. Seriously, I don't even understand why Hildy was ever with him in the first place. He's constantly butting into her life and relationship with Bruce. Right off the bat, at the beginning of the film, he invites himself to lunch with them, and he does everything he can to keep Hildy from leaving town, including getting Bruce arrested multiple times with the help of his crook friend. And I definitely did not like when Hildy and Walter got together in the end. I mean, I get it, Bruce was a loser, but the romance between Hildy and Walter was non-existent. He spends the entire film actively trying to ruin her life, and I guess she is okay with that? I don't know, but their relationship was unearned. 2. Molly And honestly, a lot of the other side characters, like the guy who was trying to deliver the reprieve, what was the point of their characters? I mentioned earlier that there was always so much going on, but it wasn't necessarily a good thing all of the time. Molly was there for two scenes, then almost dies, and everyone just brushes over it like it didn't happen at all. That's not cool. If they were going to ignore her almost death just like that, she shouldn't have been included in the first place. I mean, she didn't add on to the plot at all. It just felt like they added too much into the film, and it was overflowing with unnecessary subplots and characters. 3. The ending. Yeah, there was that funny line at the end, but overall, I just wasn't a fan of it. I mean, it was just so sudden, and Hildy just wound up in the exact same place that she started in. We learned pretty early on that her and Walter didn't get to go on a proper honeymoon because they had to go somewhere else for work. Hildy made it very clear that she was pissed off about that. Then, at the end, Hildy and Walter are all sort of lovey-dovey and ready to go off and get married, and she specifically asks for a nice honeymoon, and he says yes. But then, Walter gets a call to go to Albany for work. The look on Hildy's face makes it clear that she's unhappy about it. Did she really learn nothing that entire time? At the very least, she should have been able to see it coming. But overall, I have to give this one a watch recommendation. All right. And there you have it. There we have it. There everyone has it. Episode 29 is in the books. Be sure to leave us a comment or drop us a line and let us know what you thought. Have you seen this film? What did you think of it? And as always, thanks for listening, and don't be shy about getting in touch to give us recommendations or maybe even do a cold open for us. Definitely with the cold open. Next week, we are back with the watch-along episode, so join us for that. Obviously, it will be a bit longer of an episode, but we will do our best to keep it interesting. What movie are we doing? Can we tell that yet, or is it a surprise? It's a surprise, but we're going to go really old. Cool. Well then. That's that. It sure is. So in the meantime, please feel free to spread the word about our show. Word of mouth is a very helpful thing. Like I always say, we are not a secret, and you do not have to keep us to yourself. 
So tell your friends. Tell your enemies. You never know. They might like getting to the bottom of a good story as much as you do. Maybe even more. For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek, and I love old movies. Additional research for I Love Old Movies, the podcast, is done by Nikki Weatherden. Audio clips come from freefx.co.uk. Images are used through the provisions of fair use, and our theme song, Burning Bridges, is by The Crocs.